Welcome to the Why It Works podcast. I'm Joe Kwan, your host. Together, we'll pull back the curtain to reveal the hidden principles behind why things work. Things work for a reason. Let's find out why. Quick update on a passion project of mine that will be released shortly. If you've ever dreamed of overcoming your fear of public speaking and not only surviving, but thriving, I've developed a six-episode online course to help. The first module teaches you how to overcome your fear, and the others help you prepare to shine. Each episode is only 10 minutes and can be taken in any order. Thanks for listening, and I'll share more as we get closer to launch. Here with us today is Dr. David Lieberman, an internationally recognized leader in the fields of human behavior and interpersonal relationships. His 12 books, which have been translated into 26 languages and include two New York Times bestsellers, have sold more than 3 million copies worldwide. Dr. Lieberman frequently appears as an expert on The Today Show, The View, and Fox and Friends. He has trained personnel in every branch of the United States military, the FBI, and the NSA. We speak to Dr. Lieberman from his office in the greater New York area. Welcome, Dr. Lieberman, to the Why It Works podcast, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thanks, Joseph. So I've read a few of your books, uh, especially the Never Get Angry Again book, and there was one portion about it that I found so fascinating, the portion where you talk about when you have a decision to make and the way we decide, and I believe you call it the soul, the ego, and the body. Uh, Could you explain a little bit more about how that works? Sure. So there are essentially three forces within a human being. You've got the body, the ego, and the soul. The body wants to do what feels good. The ego wants to do what looks good. And the soul wants to do what truly is good. The alarm clock goes off in the morning, and they all battle it out. Any time a person overindulges in the body, eats in excess, excess sleep, excess entertainment, temporarily it feels good. But how do you feel about yourself afterwards? A lot, right? You know, you wanted to get up early to go run, or you wanted to avoid eating that fifth piece of chocolate cake, and you just couldn't help yourself. And so, again, temporarily feels good. Afterwards, it simply chips away your self-respect. Answer with the ego. Anytime you buy something you can't afford, make a joke at someone else's expense, think of the ego as a projection machine of how you want the world to see you. And the bigger this image, the more draining it is. You know, and the wider the distance, the bigger the chasm between who you really are and this image, the more energy it takes to sort of run this projection machine. And that's what the ego does. It puts on a show for the rest of the world. And then we have our soul, our conscience, our true essence. And when we make a choice to do what's right and responsible, and we go with our soul, our conscience, our moral barometer, even though it doesn't feel good, and irrespective of what looks good, we gain self-esteem. And self-esteem is so important because it's not just about loving yourself. Self-esteem is the gateway to emotional health, the gateway to happier, better relationships, and certainly the gateway to anger control. What I love about that is I feel like a lot of us, we understand that implicitly, but I'd never seen it formulated in that way. And it just really helped me mentally kind of think about it when I have a decision, like what are these different opposing forces that are pulling me? Because we experience all three of them. I mean, they're they're constantly raging inside us. It's not like, oh, I'm always going to go with, you know, the right thing. That's right. That's right. And it's something that's intuitive. 
Um, and when you're able to sort of concretize it and put a visual to it, it makes it easier. And, and we experience this, as you say, every day, many, many times each day, you have a decision and then you've got sort of, so the question really, the million dollar question is, so fine, if I know I'm going to feel better after making the right choice, why on earth would I choose to do something irresponsible, right? And then you get into the whole idea about self-esteem and sort of this almost vicious cycle where if you don't love yourself, if you don't like yourself, if you don't respect yourself, why would you invest in yourself, right? If you love our, even our car, you would wash it, you would clean it, you'd get it gassed up right. But if it's an old piece of junk, you would just use it as storage. And two, with us, we're wired for pleasure. But when we can't gain genuine pleasure from investing in who we are, we go for low-hanging fruit. And we seek excursions, diversions, entertainment, anything to take us away from the pain just for a modicum of pleasure. But it's such a low level of pleasure. Love that insight. Let's get to know you a little bit better. Explain what you do, but explain it to us as if you were speaking to a five-year-old. Well, my mother-in-law is still asking me what I do for a living, so I don't know. <laughs> She's actually the best. Um, so my area is in, the, is in interpersonal relationships and communication. On one hand, I do a lot of work in relationships. I just came back from a conference on parenting and on marriage and on helping people to build better relationships. I do a lot of work in personal development, self-esteem, and happiness, and the two certainly go hand in hand. I also do work in law enforcement for governments and uh, with techniques of interview and interrogation. I've written, as you probably know, a, a number of books and made a number of videos in the areas of, of lie detection and reading people. And right now, really, my passion is on anger management because I found that no matter how much people worked on themselves and on their relationships and tried to move forward, if they were held back by these bursts of rage or, or triggers that were almost sometimes outside of their control or for them to maintain any sort of emotional integrity and the relationships uh, that they care about were uh, in jeopardy. So by being able to show people how they can best manage their anger, it brings a whole new level of control into their lives. And that's something I'm just so excited to do because it's something that makes a tangible difference from day one. Wow, that's really exciting and very serendipitous that we're having this discussion now. So I am so happy to have you here with us today, and let me tell you why. This was maybe a few months ago. I was just finishing up a shopping run, you know, ordinary household supply run with, with my wife and my son. And we're in the parking lot after we've loaded the car, and we're, we're going to order some dinner because it's a little bit late to cook. So we're, we're getting on the phone to order or right before we're getting on the phone and we're trying to decide and it's taking a little bit longer than I'd like. I'm talking minutes, you know, like two or three minutes. I'm not talking hours and I'm just getting so upset, you know, and, and I'm getting visibly upset and impatient. And my wife turns to me and she says, why are you so angry? And I stop and, and I really stop and I think about it and I turn to her and I'm kind of embarrassed and I say, I don't know why. I just am. I'm really upset right now. And we, we get to order. Everything's fine. And the next day, I'm at the library, you know, picking up some books. And I see this book in bright red, you know, lettering, never get angry again with the scribble through it. And I was like, oh, my God, someone has sent me a message. I need to read this book. And it was your book. And it was extremely uh, helpful in, in, in many ways uh, for my understanding and also used in practical, you know, living. And I'm just so curious, um, sort of what inspired you to write this book? 
Right. So I've written, I don't know, probably, I guess, 11, 12 books before this. And um, I was, it was interesting. Usually I would, I would write what I felt at that time as something I really was passionate about. And, um, and this is something that's always sort of been brewing, I guess, uh, no pun intended, uh, in terms of just being able to, um, to put something out there that I thought maybe could contribute something into the conversation. And when people ask me what I'm working on, I say, you know, I don't know, I'm thinking about different ideas. And it was amazing. Invariably, almost everyone would say, you got to do a book on anger. Talk about serendipity. I was very odd that, you know, seemingly well-adjusted people uh, would be so in need of a book on anger. So the usual thing is, you know, I look and see what else is on there because there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. And there's, there are a number of really good books on anger outside of mine, or if I could say that. And then I, I thought about it, and, and I believe that there's something new I could contribute to the conversation in terms of anger management and go beyond simply trying to manage your anger. Because the truth is, Joe, is once you become angry, you're already now fighting an uphill battle. So what the book does is it shows people to reorient their perspective. And, you know, you know that an hour from when you were upset, you were not going to be upset anymore. The next day, less so. After two weeks, you're embarrassed looking back on it. And what you lacked in that moment was perspective. So imagine if you had the tools to bring that perspective of tomorrow into the moment when you were angry. It would simply dissipate. What happens is when a person becomes egocentric, ego-oriented, they become, their perspective narrows, they become very hyper-focused, and they lose balance. Sanity really is synonymous with perspective, the ability to see, accept, and respond to the world, to see reality clearly, accept, and respond. So in that moment, you were just hungry, you were tired, I suspect, and reality wasn't unfolding according to your expectations. But, and that really, it wasn't you, that was just a manifestation of your lack of perspective. So what we're able to do is show people you know, a, a series of strategies that allow for them to bring a wider perspective into every day. So before you even enter that situation, you already know it's not the end of the world unless it's the end of the world. And <laughs> so it's, it's you intellectually, you know it, but when you lose it in the moment, it's because of lack of perspective. So the long answer to a very good short question is, I, I did a lot of research and I found that this was something that could save people just so much because yes, breathing exercises work and yes, reminding yourself it's not that important in the moment. All these things make sense, but it's like pulling up weeds one by one. You're much better off taking a holistic approach and just uprooting you know, the, the weed at its source rather than simply clipping it every two seconds. Absolutely. Let's take a look at some examples of folks getting angry and I'd love to get your take on it. This probably isn't one of Martin Scorsese's better known movies, but the portrayal by Robert De Niro of fallen boxer Jake LaMotta is so powerful. I get chills every time I see it. Oh! 
Wow. What do you think is going on here? So, you know, it's interesting is that I bet many people watching that, uh, you know, can't help but feel uh, a sense of adrenaline rushing through their own bodies uh, just watching it. You know, it's interesting is that, you know, for a long time, research had assumed that it was good when you were angry to sort of, you know, punch a pillow or to bang your head against the wall, maybe not so recommended. Yeah, I don't recommend that or, or sort of let it out because I thought anger was like a steam kettle. And unless you were able to release it, it would, you would sort of uh, explode. It turns out it was wrong. What happens is that when you are angry and you vent it in an aggressive way, what it does is it pumps up the blood pressure. It ends up forcing you to justify why you're behaving this way. And it increases the anger, which is sometimes counterintuitive doesn't mean you suppress it or, or not release it. We'll get to that in a moment. What it does mean is that when you vent it in an aggressive way, it ends up causing you to become more angry. Uh, and a, a lot of people really misunderstand. I know there's, there's, they even got these things in Manhattan, like, a, I don't know what they're called, like uh, some type of rooms where you can pretty much, you know, act like a rock star and break everything in sight, sort of let it out. It's not just ineffective, but it's, it's, it can be very, very injurious. Also, parenthetically, but also important, is they found that people who exercise while angry are four times more likely to have a coronary incident uh, than otherwise. Wow. So, you know what? Going out for that run while you're angry is grossly ill-advised. Now, exercise is fantastic for anger management, and you should uh, express your anger, but those are two very important uh, distinctions from aggressively, aggressively uh, expressing it. And the distinction is, is literally life and death for Kami. Yeah, I mean, when, when we take a look at that video, it seems less like a healthy expression and more like a forest fire or, or like something that makes it burn hotter almost. It, it seems like it would yeah. make it worse, not dissipate. That's just it. You know, there, there's a saying that the external awakens the internal. And this is something that Aristotle spoke about thousands of years ago uh, with behavior modification is that you know, but it's interesting is that, for example, if you, they found that if you take a pen like this and put it in your mouth while watching something funny, you would assume it's funnier than if you do this because the expression of having that smile on your face mm-hmm. uh, forced you to reconcile with your physiology, meaning if you're smiling, then why am I smiling? It must be because it's funny, not the other way around. So the external does awaken the internal, and by calming yourself down, Physically, you'll end up feeling calmer emotionally. Again, it doesn't mean that you suppress the anger. It's important to draw the distinction, but venting it in an aggressive way is very, very unhealthy. Expressing good, venting bad. (laughs) Yes, good, yes. Okay, great. Let's take a look at a world-class poker player losing his poker face after a tough beat to an underdog. And chips. Annie Duke put the pressure on Phil when she check raised him, and now with Phil's all-in call, the pressure is back on Annie. About 450 more. She set the trap, but Phil has come back very strong. I call. Annie calls the all-in. 
And Phil sees what he's up against. And Annie is overcome with emotion, seeing how close she is to winning this championship. Annie has control of his hand. Now here comes the turn. It's a seven. No help for Phil. Annie Duke is now one card away from two million dollars. An eight, please. Phil Helmuth needs an eight to win this pot. Both players on their feet, anticipating the river card. It's a three. Annie Duke has defeated nine of the strongest poker players in the world and wins the first ever World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions. What the f***? going on? Unbelievable. She won every race for two days. Damn it. Show up with King 10. Overpair against overpair. She check raised me six times. I know she didn't have it all six times. Oh my god, I won. <laughs> oh. She had to be 30 to 1 to win this. I love Annie. But well, you heard Phil, and he was right. Annie was definitely a long shot to win this all, but as the only female at the table, she is now the last man standing. Oh. Another second for me. Second, third, second, third. No money. All right, let me call my brother. She wins two million. Oh, you heard Annie Duke. She's moving in with ace four. She's going to give her brother Howard a call. I won. Oh, my God. I won. This has got to be a proud moment for little sis. Oh, God, Howard, I'm so sorry about the sixes. But clearly a bittersweet uh, moment as well. I see it, but I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. I just can't believe it. And then there's bitter only. <laughs> <laughs> what just happened here, David? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You see, by the way, and let, me, let me tell you something. Let me see. Do you think that... I don't know, six months. Yeah. At what point do you think he would watch it himself mm -hmm. and laugh like someone else would at that? How, how, what, 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 how much time do you think would have to pass for him to look back and laugh, if at all? This guy, just because I've seen other clips of him yeah. venting and raving, I think it could yeah. take years, if ever. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Right. And so, but that, and that, that, that is, and I'm certainly, certainly not diagnosing anyone. He seems like a lovely guy and, and, um, you know, but but the, the quicker we sort of regain our perspective, you know, mm -hmm. an indication of our emotional equilibrium. But you'll see, you said several times there about, you know, 30 to 1 odds and this and that. And it, it really, it's a great clip because it points to something that goes to the core of a lot of people's anger, and that's a sense of fairness, right? In other words, it's not fair. You know, you take an example about, you know, how can you give your entire sales team a Rolex watch? and they still get upset. And that's because one guy got it with a diamond bezel, and it's not fair. And you see little kids do this all the time, right? It doesn't matter what they get, they don't care how many cookies they got, if their little sister got a bigger cookie, or more, <laughs> right? They're not happy, and they're angry. And you know that's why, you know, one of the reasons why the book has gotten so much attention is because it helps to explain this idea about fairness and how insidious it is and how dangerous it is because if you're constantly looking and comparing and contrasting what you have with what someone else has had, you will always come up short. As a matter of fact, it's, uh, a, it's actually a different book I wrote, but I bring down a study that talks about the Olympics, where there are three different places. You've got um, gold, silver, and bronze. Right. The silver medalist is actually unhappy, while the bronze medalist is happy. 
Why? Because, of course, the bronze medalist is thinking, woof, I was almost with all those losers, but I made it. The silver medalist is thinking, I was so close to the gold. So much so that the research finds that the silver medalist actually lives four years on average lifespan shorter than the bronze medalist. It literally kills him that he came up short, all because of this idea about looking around to see what your neighbors got, to see what this person got. And when reality doesn't unfold according to our expectations and entitlements, of course it's going to lead to anger. But if you move through your day recognizing this idea that we hold about fairness is so distorted, you will be tickled pink with what you have, enjoy it, and you're not going to be catching and complaining because somebody else got something that you didn't get. Yeah, I, I think that is so insightful. And it, it goes hand in hand with a lot of what I've been reading and hearing about as well, which is the power of being grateful yeah. for what you have. So, so that just really is complementary to what you just said, because when you're grateful that you are in the Olympics That's and right. you won a silver medal is very different than focusing on, oh man, that guy elbowed me and that's why he got the gold or he had a better trainer or comes from a richer country or something, has a nicer suit. So that's why I deserve to win gold, but I didn't. It's the same thing. You still got silver, but it's all kind of in your mind, in your perspective. That's right. That's right. You know, I've worked with people that were, had, had hardcore anger issues. You're talking about people who are, you know, you would think no way, no how. And simply by showing them how, this, you know, it's a part of the brain it's called the RAS, reticular activating system. It's located in the, in the uh, base of the, of the uh, brain and the top of the brainstem. And its job is acts as a filtering mechanism to filter out unnecessary stimulation, which is why, for example, let's say, you know, you've got a new car, or you bought a new tie, you've got new glasses. You're suddenly noticing other people's ties and cars and glasses. You, they were always there. But the reticular activating system, again, is a part of the brain that acts as an antenna of sorts, and it hones in on what you deem important. If you were simply to be mindful of the things that go well and to focus and have a sense of appreciation and gratitude, you will literally experience a different world, a different life. And as you aptly say, is that when you focus on the good, it's very hard to complain about the negative. Wow. That is definitely something that I think uh, all of us could, <laughs> could, could benefit from. So anyone who suffers through traffic uh, in an urban area can probably relate to this next clip. Here's my Nightline co-anchor, Dan Harris. You are watching a road rage incident that goes to dramatic extremes. Investigators say it all started on a Sunday afternoon in March of last year when Bradley Turner and his wife Christy were driving in their Toyota SUV in James City, North Carolina. This Chevy pickup, driven by Josh Berry, with his friends Nathan and Shaley inside, may have helped them off. He got up beside me, leaned out the window, pointing at me, saying he's going to kill me. The chase was on. For 30 to 40 minutes, with their four-year-old child in the back seat, the Turners tailed the young trio. Josh Berry says he tried to lose them, but they followed him all the way to his friend Nathan's driveway. When we see him getting out of the car, I threw my truck in part, turned off the keys and looked at Nathan. I was like, I guess he's really going to come up here. In that moment, Berry's friend Shaylee started rolling her cell phone video camera. And when he walked up, I just looked at him. 
He said a couple words, threw a punch, and it was on like Donkey Kong. On like Donkey Kong. Turner goes down, and remember, his child is in the back seat. The first time I looked up, honestly, that's when I seen the kids in the car. That's the only reason I didn't keep kicking. And look at this. You see his wife coming down the car, and she's got a gun, and hands it to him. Her facial expression is completely calm. Christy Turner hands her husband a pistol. He cocks it, and it accidentally goes off. All we heard was click, click, click. That is when the camera goes off, too. So, Dr. Lieberman, how come this is actually so believable, right? Like, like you see this, and it's actually not that far of a stretch of, of the imagination for this to happen to someone we know or, or to ourselves. No, no, and, and for sure. Let, let me, let me uh, ex- offer a, a background to better put this into psychological context because we presume that it's the person that got us upset. Let me give an example. Let's say you're driving along and you get cut off on the road, right? First, many people want to see what the person looks like who just cut us off, right? Because why? Who is going to bother you more? A nice little lady driving like this on, right, with the, you know, on the way to her own funeral or a young guy driving with a beer bottle in one hand, you know, a cigarette in the other, baseball cap, music blasting. Who is going to bother us more, the little lady or young guy? The punk. Why? Because we assume the little lady probably didn't see our car, right? Maybe let alone the dashboard of her own car. But the young guy did it to me on purpose because he doesn't care. He doesn't respect me, blah, blah, blah. So look at the insanity. You, you almost get into an accident and you speed up risking your life to see what the person looks like to see how angry you should be, right? Because it's not the situation. It's the meaning we attach to the situation. See, if that person who cut them off was a little old lady, this guy would have maybe let out a couple of, you know, non-choice words and that would have been the end of it. But the young guy suddenly enraged his own ego and it became personal. And here's, I want to I say all of your, your listeners and viewers, 25 years of therapy, okay? <laughs> Something happens, you take it personally, you get upset. Something happens, you don't take it personally, you don't get upset. That's it, Joe, okay? If you, once you get upset, you're fighting an uphill battle. Now, what happens is when you're in a situation with somebody, let's say somebody's mean, somebody's yelling at you, somebody's screaming at you. If you're focused on your pain, of course you're going to get upset. If you focus on their pain, you won't. Which is why, for example, let's say that take this crazy guy, that crazy guy, he's probably a reasonable guy who my best guess is feels grossly ashamed of his actions. I mean, I mean, think about it. What reasonable person would bring themselves to this point? But, you know, let's say that um, you found yourself in a situation and somebody bangs into you and you turn around and you're upset but you see the person that's handicapped or blind trying to get by right? Your anger just simply dissipates because you see their vulnerability. You see their helplessness. It, you don't take it personally. And that's just it. You're focused on their pain. But if you focus and so consumed with your own pain, you can't see past your own stuff. And that's what leads to anger, which is why the more egocentric a person is, the more the world revolves around them, the more angry they're going to become. And we go back to the original model, the body, ego, and soul, the less responsible we are, the more the ego is going to engage to compensate for our feelings of guilt and security and shame and so on, that we're not able to look at someone else's pain because we're just ensconced and consumed with our own. Yeah, to use your language, I think the ego is very like me, 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 me facing, right? So it doesn't allow us, like you said, to see the other person as part of us or part of the situation. We stop at ourselves and that's it. 
That's perfect. And that, that, by the way, is how a narcissistic opera singer warms up. Me, 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 me. <laughs> <laughs> they say there's nothing like a good joke, and that was nothing like a good joke. Uh, <laughs> you, what you're saying is exactly right. Is that, and you know, much the same way, let's say, Joe, you've got a toothache, right? All the world's problems go out the window. When you've got a toothache, because you're absorbed in your own pain, which is understandable. Imagine somebody who is absorbed in their emotional pain. That's what egocentricity is. That's what it means to be self-absorbed, is that you are just ensconced in your own stuff and you can't see someone else's, which is why when somebody's uh, inconveniences you, somebody's disrespectful to you, somebody's mean to you, whatever, you can't help but get upset because it's just about you. You're not able to see past you. Yeah, what, what I love about this is your this insight is keying in on how anger is less about the things that are happening to you and more about who you are and how you process it and, and the meaning and, and how you react to things. That's right. It's completely interpretation, which is why, for example, take there's so many ways to look at this, but let's say, take that same exact scenario with this guy that we just saw, right? Mm -hmm. Now, let's assume that right before he got cut off on the road, he got a call and he found out that he won the $100 million Powerball, right? He gets cut off. He's not even thinking about this guy. Right? <laughs> All right. Again, a few choices. He's just in a kind of state. He's just, he, his focus is not on that. And that's just it, is that it's not the situation. It's the meaning we attach to it. And when you're in a low state, you're in a negative state, it's much more easy to become upset because a low state means that you are ego-oriented, you're focused on your own stuff, and you're in your own pain. Wow. That's great. I love that. So let's take a look at a debate for the ages. Well, maybe not really, but it is a pretty great example of relationship anger. <laughs> Rachel, come on, talk to me, please. Oh, I can't even look at you right now. What? Nothing, nothing. <laughs> you just said everything was okay. What, what are they talking about? Rachel, yeah, well, just get away no, from it me. It was a mistake. I made a mistake, okay? A mistake? What were you trying to put it in? Her purse? Where? Where did he put it? Ross, you had sex with another woman. Oh, my God. Oh, God, I knew something had to be wrong because my fingernails did not grow at all yesterday. Yeah, well, I guess they had a fight and he got drunk. <gasps> you guys knew about this and you didn't tell us? He had sex and we get hit in our heads. To leave get out of here just no, get out no now. no i want to stay i want to talk about this okay all right how was she uh oh <laughs> what was she good don't answer that come on ross you said you wanted to talk about it let's talk about it how was she she was awful she was Horrible. not good not good nothing compared to you she was different. Oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> Good, different. Nobody likes change. Should we do something? Yeah, never cheat on Rachel. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. I, w I was disgusted with myself, and this morning I was so I was. I was so upset, and then I got your message, and I was so happy, and all I wanted was to get her out of my apartment as fast as possible. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. What time did your little friend leave? 
<laughs> oh my god, she was there. She was still there. She was in there when I was in there. Oh, just Listen, oh, hey, hey, the important thing is she meant she meant nothing to me. And yet she was worth jeopardizing our relationship. <laughs> Look, I didn't think there was a relationship to jeopardize. I thought we were broken up. We were on a break. That, for all I knew, could last forever. That, to me, is a break up. You think you're going to get out of this on a technicality? Look, I'm not trying to get out. What are your thoughts here, David? <laughs> I wish you'd run the other five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, look, you, you know what? A, a lot of anger in interpersonal relationships uh, has to do with power and control, which is why, you know, one of the, the most effective things, there's two parts here, is well, maybe we can get to the other part uh, in terms of expressing our anger in a healthy way. Clearly, racial perhaps didn't maximize that opportunity here, but, you know, I guess the newspaper is not the end of the world. Um, but, you know, when you've done something as egregious, something that is really unconscionable, something very wrong to somebody else, a lot of it has to do with power and control. Yes, it has to do with the fact that you did something that went against their wishes, but you made them feel very helpless and vulnerable, which is why one of the things you want to do in getting that relationship healthy again is to reestablish trust by putting that other person in a position of control, meaning that we very often do the exact opposite. We, you know, we, we did something that we regret. So we, we show up at the person's office or we call them up and say, okay, fine. I was, you know, we end up moving more into their space and trying to assert more power, more control. And they've already were vulnerable and taken advantage of and manipulated by us. And now we're seeking to balance it out by doing more of the same. And it's the opposite of what you want to do. You want to put that person back in a position of control, come into the situation with complete humility and respect. And those are the two keys here. Whenever you want to reestablish a relationship after you've done wrong, come into it with humility. That means you take your ego out of the way. It wasn't like he said, you see how well that went here. You know, he was defending himself. And as she pointed out, a technicality, right, right or wrong doesn't make a difference. It's not about the, you know, the semantics of it, but it has to do with the fact that, you know, no one's going to get more mad at you than you are at yourself. Right? So I do a lot of work with customer service also. So had Ross beaten himself up, and said, you're right, I'm, I cannot, and ended up beating, Rachel would have nowhere to go. You know, this is true also, as soon as you sort of defend yourself, they get defensive. So you come into complete humility, you don't defend yourself, you acknowledge and accept full responsibility 100%, and then you put the person in a position of power by saying, what is it that I can do to restore my trust or your trust in me? What can I do? You tell me, not this is the way we're going to do it, I said I was sorry, and so on. Well, what I love about what you're saying about that, it reminds me of one of my fatal flaws when I'm apologizing, let's say, to my wife. It's the whole sorry, not sorry, right? You, you start off saying you're sorry, and then you kind of just throw a little bit of extra in at the end, and you just ruin the, the apology. And I guess from your perspective, why is it so hard for us to really come with humility and apologize in a way that gives people back that dignity, that power and control when we've injured them? That's a beautiful question, and the answer is yeah, one word, and that's the ego. The ego wants to do a lot of things. Accepting responsibility is the last one on its list because the ego's identity is, is in being right. It's in looking right. It's in being perceived of as right. It's feeling in control. It is all the, the, is the anathema, the, the opposite of what our real self is, which is a sense of humility and a sense of honesty and integrity. So... 
when you admit that you're wrong, it's you have to make you. The reason why it's so difficult is because your ego is engaged, which is why humility is so important. Because again, the, when you take your ego out of the equation, you're able to see from the other person's perspective, be able to empathize with them, and that's who the empathy is. My ego and your ego are out of the way. I can feel your pain. Your pain is my pain. In which case, I'm only focused on your pain, and then I can help you. But if I'm focused on my pain, if I'm upset, I can't feel your pain. I can't shift perspective. I can't worry about you when I'm consumed with myself. So what makes it? Well, the reason why you throw that in there is you know the right thing to do intellectually is to come in and apologize. And then it's sort of like your ego says, "Well, hold on a second, Joe. You know you're not completely to blame here." Go ahead and tell her why you did what you did, and then you kick yourself afterwards because you want to take complete responsibility, even if you're 1% to blame. doesn't make it a complete responsibility. Once the relationship is healed and healthier, then revisit it. But if you come into it with a he said, she said, you're back to arguing the very same way that you were the first time it happened, and you won't move the relationship forward, let alone the conversation. Yeah, I really love what you're saying about the – egos kind of being blended together as opposed to being separate and that being more healing and helpful. Um, I study a martial art, you know, Aikido. It's very much the same thing from a physical perspective. For me to execute a technique properly, I have to almost in a way become softer and blend with the other person and not think, okay, I'm here blocking this, they're here attacking. I actually have to say, okay, this is coming in and I'm, it's not so much catching, but almost like accepting it and saying, okay, this has a right to be, I'm here. And then from there, you can come to a resolution that's less painful because it's more natural, so to speak. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going on record that I'm stealing that example. I love it. Um, <laughs> that's great. And yeah, Aikido or Judo is a great example of using your opponent's strength against them and if you're just feeling so, you know, stuck in your own thing, you're going to combat force with force. And you're not able to gel or meld or and you, you just expressed it beautifully. Um, and also another great example is public speaking. Why is public speaking such a big fear? You know, and they say even that, you know, it's a, it's, it's a greater fear than death is because a person fears that they're going to be rejected. They're going, you know, they're, they're going to be uh, not accepted. Someone's going to say something. They're going to feel foolish and so on. So. One of the great things you can do in terms of public speaking, it's also an example I bring in the book as well, because it, it goes to the core of, of fear, and fear is always a precursor to anger. And that is that if you focus on the other person and on their needs, if you're giving a speech and you're consumed with how you're coming across, of course you can be self-conscious. That's what it means, is you are literally conscious of the self. But if your only goal is to help the people you're talking to and you focus on them, what they can learn, how they can be helped, your attention is off of yourself and you can't be nervous. You're only going to be nervous or self-conscious if you focus on the self and your ego is engaged. But if I'm focused on you, on your good, on your pain, on your pleasure, on what you can gain, the attention is off myself and so goes my fear, so goes my anxiety, and I'm no longer self-conscious. So, Dr. Lieberman, I have already stolen that example from you. I, 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 think I, I, I think I got some of that from reading your books, and I'm actually working on something about, you know, to help people overcome their fear of public speaking. Yeah, and yeah. I almost literally take that example word for word that you just gave. So, thank you, for, uh, thank you for the reminder. Well, you know what they say. If you take it from one place, it's stealing. Take it from two, it's research. <laughs> no problem. Thank you. Thank you. So what is it about the relationship between sons and their fathers that can be so difficult? Let's take a look at a pretty dramatic moment 
from an otherwise lighthearted comedy. Well, I'm glad you're here. Um, some business came up I gotta handle. So we're gonna have to put a, our trip on hold. You understand? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, cool. that's cool. Just, just for a couple of weeks. Mm, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a little longer. Yeah, whatever, whatever. Look, I'll, I'll call you next week and we'll iron out the details, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah, yeah. It was great seeing you, son. You too, Lou. Yeah, um... I'm sorry, Will. You know what, actually, this works out better for me. You know, the Slimmies of Summer come to class wearing next to nothing, you know what I'm saying? Well, it's all right to be angry. Hey, well, why should I be mad? I'm saying, at least he said goodbye this time. I just wish I hadn't wasted my money buying this stupid present. I'm sorry, I, you know, if there was... Something that I... Hey, you know what? You ain't got to do no, nothing, Uncle Phil. Hey, you know, ain't like I'm still five years old, you know? Ain't like I'm going to be sitting up every night asking my mom, when's daddy coming home, you know? Who needs him? Hey, he wasn't there to teach me how to shoot my first basket, but I learned, didn't I? Hey, I got pretty damn good at it, too, didn't I, yeah, Uncle Phil? Did. Got through my first day without him, right? Mm -hmm. I learned how to drive. I learned how to shave. I learned how to fight without him. I had 14 great birthdays without him. He never even sent me a damn card. Die with him! I ain't need him then and I don't need him now. Will. Nah, you know what, Uncle Phil? I'm going to get through college without him. I'm going to get a great job without him. I'm going to marry me a beautiful honey. And I'm going to have me a whole bunch of kids. I'm going to be a better father than he ever was. And I sure as hell don't need him for that. Because ain't a damn thing he could ever teach me about how to love my kids. How come he don't want me, man? Oh, man, I need a moment. I get choked up every time I see that. <laughs> oh, what's your reaction here, Dr. Lieberman? So, isn't it? First, he's a, Will Smith is a great actor. Um, and, uh, you know, it is amazing how, how, how easily our emotions get swayed from something as, you know, as a, as a comedy. And you know it's not real. And but, so what Paul's on is, it's interesting is that, you know, certainly well acted and, and well written. And, you know, at the end, he says, you know, you know what's wrong with me? You know what? Uh, you will not find too many people who have severe anger issues that didn't have, doesn't have some sort of relationship challenge, particularly with their parents. You know, the ego has this equation that how I'm treated by other people equals my self-worth. Now, you and I know that's crazy and everyone else knows it's crazy, yet we still can't help ourselves because we presume vis-a-vis -vis the ego that what other people think of me determines what I'm worth. So if somebody rejects me, someone doesn't like me, I feel less good about myself, which is why the bigger the ego, the more problematic it is because the more dependent I am on their feedback in order to feel good about me. Here's the thing. How people treat us has nothing to do with us. It's a reflection of their own self-worth, their ability to give, their ability to receive. 
but our ego makes it about us. And that's why it goes to the core of anger management, anger control, really, or being free from anger, period, is because if my self-worth isn't contingent on people liking me or disliking me, respecting me or not respecting me, I'm free. But if I'm walking around dependent on them to nourish me, to feed me, to uh, like me, to respect me, to give, I'm walking around as a broken clea, a broken vessel anyway. I'm not going to be able to hold it. But moreover, my mood is going to be very precarious. If I'm given what I need or deem as respect, I'll be in a good mood. If I'm not, I'm going to get angry. And the, the reason why healing relationships with our parents is so important to anger management is because as a child, we're completely egocentric. The world revolves around us. Naturally so. As adults, we transition more into that of a balance between the, the soul and the ego. But children are entirely egocentric, which is why children whose parents get divorced very often blame themselves. And for example, what seven-year-old is going to say, wow, you know what, dad's screaming at me, but he just lost a big account at work, so I'll let him let off some steam, and then he'll be okay. No, the child is going to assume that I'm being yelled at because of the defect, the deficiency, there's something broken, bad, wrong within me, that's why I'm being yelled at, that's why I'm being abused, that's why I'm being screamed at. And then that child transitions to adulthood with this shame, this feeling that they're not lovable, that they're not worthy, they're not good enough. And then depending on their personality type, that anger is going to unleash itself either aggressively or passive aggressively. What I think is so important about what you're saying here, and I just want to pull it out separately for a second, is that how other people are treating us or when they're angry at us or treating us poorly, it's got more to do with them than it does with us. And it's so hard to really even as an adult, right? Like, like you can tell me that like a million times and I can rationally understand it. But mm -hmm. from, I guess, because of the way we are as human beings and as a child and whatever, you don't really internalize things that way a lot. I mean, a lot of times someone treats you badly and, and that whole childhood feeling of shame and, and worthlessness uh, comes back. It's, it's really quite damaging, I think. It is, and, and, and moreover, is that if I don't love me, I can't imagine why you would love me. So you don't even need to treat me disrespectfully. I can perceive a, in the tone in what you say, don't say, I'll connect the dots to draw the narrative that explains why I'm not lovable. So you don't have a shot. You can be respectful, you can be loving, but I've got no vessel. I can't hold on to it. At the same time, if I don't love me, not only can I understand why you would love me, but I have a hard time giving love as well and giving respect. So I'm very, very isolated. I'm very, very alone, and I'm very, very angry. You know, I, I caught myself in a, in a rather embarrassing example of this uh, maybe a month or two ago. Like the people in these examples, there must have been so, something going on in my life that was stressing me out, right? And my son spilled something or knocked something over nothing tragic, right? From a monetary value or from a cleanup value, it was, it was minimal. But I was, I was redlining, you know? And yeah. I turned to him and, you know, this is not, well, I, don't, I hope it's not usually the way I react to these things. But, you know, I, I turned to him and I got really upset. And I, the words that came out of my mouth, I'm so ashamed. I said, what's wrong with you? And as soon as I said that and I saw the look on his face, I was so ashamed. You know, because like to, to say that and to put that on him for such a insignificant little thing. And, you know, I, I caught myself and I explained to him like, look, you know, daddy's having a hard time. It's really not your fault. I'm, I take those words back. I'm so sorry. I don't want you to ever think that you make a mistake and that means there's something wrong with you or I'll love you any less. But you can see how 
people over a lifetime with good parents who, who aren't trying to damage their kids, uh-huh. but using that yeah. kind of language and repeating that pattern, it's yeah. very damaging. Yeah. It is, but first off, go easy on yourself. You know, I begin all my parenting talks the same way. I say, you're going to mess up your kids, it's just a matter of how bad. <laughs> very few people transition out of, you know, childhood. And, and you know, why? Because, you know, we're human beings, we do the best we can and so on. But certainly, you know, once you catch yourself, uh, and, you know, you explain to the child, I'm, I'm a big proponent of when parents lose their temper, is to explain and to apologize, model at least for the child what it looks like, because they're going to get lose their temper too at some point, and model what it looks like, not that you hold on to it, say, you know what, I, yeah, I got upset, but you know what, and then begin to blame. You, I told you to use two hands ten times, or I told you not to open that jar of jelly, or I just lost the figure. Say, you know what, it doesn't matter what you're holding, it doesn't matter what kind of day I had, what I said was wrong. Dad is very sorry. And not only that, ask for his forgiveness. In other words, walk him through the proper steps so that he, as an adult, will be able to manage his relationships with his wife and his children in the same way. He makes a mistake. He doesn't blame, minimize, justify. He accepts responsibility, apologizes, asks the other person to, for forgiveness. And that is a lesson that, you know, I'd say almost would make the experience worth it. Uh, I think that's great advice. Thank you. Jack Nicholson is one of the best at portraying unhinged characters. Uh, Let's see if we can handle this clip. You snotty little bastard. Your Honor, I'd like to ask for a recess. I'd like an answer to the question, Judge. The court will wait for an answer. If Lieutenant Kendrick gave an order that Santiago wasn't to be touched, then why did he have to be transferred? Colonel? Lieutenant Kendrick ordered the code red, didn't he? Because that's what you told Lieutenant Kendrick to do. Object! And when it went bad, you cut these guys loose! Your Honor, you had markers inside a phony transfer! Your Honor, you doctored the logbook! Damn it, Captain! You coerced the doctor! Consider yourself in contempt! Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago, and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know, that Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives, and my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use these words as the backbone of a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand a post. Either way, I don't give a damn what you think you are entitled to. Did you order the code red? I did the job. Did you order the code red? You're goddamn right I did. What jumps out at you here? Man, two fine actors. You know what? Um, it, it, these clips are great because they, they, they each illustrate a different aspect and, you know, launching pad for great conversation and anger. 
And one of the reasons why we become angry, by the way, ask yourself is, you know what, you, you don't feel in control. Why, why anger? In other words, there are a lot of emotions we can draw from, and it's obvious we go to anger, but, but why? Why, not, why don't we go to, I don't know, envy or jealousy? Or, what is it about anger? And the reason is because anger is illusion of control. When a person feels, I mentioned before, that fear is a precursor to anger. We usually feel vulnerable, we feel helpless, and we feel scared before we become angry. And what happens is that anger is, again, it's the illusion of control because physiologically, anger releases a number of neurotransmitters and hormones such as adrenaline and cortisol, and they make us feel more empowered. So it gives us a, se us a sense that oh, we are feeling less vulnerable, that we're feeling uh, more powerful, and that's why we sort of go to anger. Uh, but of course, the more angry we become, the less in control we are, and then we become more angry when it's spiraling, as you just saw here, an apt illustration from anger into sort of blind rage. And the distinction is, you know, anger, you still got that thinking part of the brain, but blind rage is, it sort of shuts off. And what happens is one of the, the uh, hormones called cortisol, also called the stress hormone responsible for waking, is released and it interferes with the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain responsible for executive functioning. So you literally become dumb when you become angry. You don't think clearly. I mean, else is true also. You never would have said what you said to your son had you thought about it for one second, right? It's simply the thinking brain just shut off. And so what, that's what anger, anger does. And then we end up doubling down on that anger because you just feel more shame than what you said. You feel less good about yourself. You feel less in control. And because you can't reclaim yourself, I mean, thank God you did, but a lot of people end up doubling down as the illustration we saw with the uh, road rage is at some point you think the guy would have thought, you know what, I'm getting beaten up here and his wife did him no favors by handing him a handgun in that state also. But anger ends up uh, spiraling, which is why people do the most unconscionable, unthinkable things in a state of rage that they would never do if they had their senses about them. What I love about what you're saying here, Dr. Lieberman, is, and I hope people don't misinterpret what I'm saying, is that there's a logic behind this rage or anger. There's, there's a psychological, physiological reason why it may turn out this way, way rather than someone taking a more peaceful or controlled. It's not because they're an insane person. It's, it's not because it's some rant. There actually is like a reason why you might go this route and your body can actually very powerfully steer you down this route, which we all know is, is not the right route. Of course, no doubt. And again, one of the reasons why the book has gotten so much attention is because it shows people how to shut this valve off. So first off, the wider perspective is, is essential because coming into the situation, you simply don't feel those embers of anger. If it doesn't exist, if you've got no ego, then, you've, then nothing can grow. Nothing can sort of overtake you. But even if it does sort of blindside you, you're able to sort of just quickly extinguish the flames, regain your emotional equilibrium before you say and do anything. And it's not about suppressing it or repressing it. It's about just very quickly absorbing it, acknowledging it, and bringing an a intellectual awareness to uh, rule over the emotions and just move yourself out of the anger very, very quickly. So you're not fighting against your nature. You're simply less bothered by the situation, in which case you're now acting in accordance with your nature, and that is you're not bothered. So why should you be angry? Going back to the original reason why I came across you and reading the book, there's just um, 
so, so many things in there that I think can really help improve people's lives. And it's, it's sort of a fundamental part of being a human being, right? We get angry, we get upset, and just being more aware of how we do that and handling it that in a way that improves our lives rather than, you know, tears down our lives. Dr. Lieberman, it's been a real treat to talk to you today and hear your expertise on anger. What updates would you like to share with the audience and how can people get in touch with you to learn more? Okay, so let's see. Uh, first, um, you know, the, the book is available at fine and probably not fine bookstores. They're really fine ones, but uh, Never Get Angry Again. It's on Amazon and, and your local independent bookstore. And uh, it's, a, it's a, I mean, I, I'm very proud of the book. You know, I always joke, I've written 12 books and I recommend three of them. But, uh, you know, this is one that I just, it's, you notice it is actually practical. It's not just theories and philosophies or psychology, you know, it's, it's real, genuine, practical stuff that works. So I'm just grateful for the opportunity to do that. So they can check that out on Amazon. My website, uh, they can go to as well. And I've got, if they're interested in something on lie detection, I've got courses at uh, neverbelietoagain.com. And my website is... Uh, drdavidlieberman.com. Great. And I will include all that information on the show notes for, uh, okay. so people can find it easily. Thank you, Dr. Lieberman, for sharing your insights on why it works. My pleasure. And let me say, you are an amazing guy. I, I, everyone should know. If you want to keep this in, it would be great because they should know. You've been so pleasant throughout this entire process and sort of putting this together. I know it wasn't easy. It took several months of back and forth to, to get a date and to make it work. And you've been such, as we say, a man, such a gentleman in the entire process. You're a lovely person. You're a super talent. And I wish you a lot of success. Thank you, sir. Like Scorsese and De Niro, a great book to go with this podcast is Never Get Angry Again, the foolproof way to stay calm and in control in any conversation or situation by our guest, Dr. David Lieberman. It's one of the most insightful books I've ever read and has informed my thinking in many areas beyond just anger. To receive a free copy of Never Get Angry Again or another audiobook of your choice, just go to audibletrial.com slash why it works. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash why it works for your free audiobook. To support our show, please leave a rating or comment or become a sponsor of Why It Works by going to www.patreon.com slash why it works. That's www.patreon.com slash why it works. Thank you. And remember, the enemy of learning is boring. Thanks for listening to this episode of Why It Works. For more information about Joquan Joe coaching, as well as access to my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit joquanjo.com. And stay tuned for our next Why It Works adventure.